U.S. Vice President Mike Pence is seen as a humble man of faith, and yet he's among the most stalwart defenders of President Donald Trump, who's not perhaps our most obvious exemplar of Christian godliness. How does Pence balance his devotion to God with his devotion to the president? And how far do his own ambitions stretch? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. I'm here with my co-host, my esteemed co-host, as always, Alex Wagner. Hello, Alex. Am I esteemed always? You are always esteemed. You will continue for all time to be esteemed. Matt, you're too kind. It's good to be here, my friend. Good to have you. We are missing our other esteemed co-host, Jeffrey Goldberg, who is off gallivanting somewhere. Doing estimable things. Estimable things, indeed. It has been a newsy several weeks. Got a giant tax bill. We got new turns in Robert Mueller's investigation. More powerful men who are being confronted with allegations of predatory behavior. There is a lot going on, Alex. Uh, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> it's become incredibly tedious to say it was a newsy week, but really, Matt, you are right. Seriously it has been a newsy week. Where to begin? Well, we wanted to talk this week about none of that, but about a figure who's lurked <laughs> in the background through all of that. Vice President Mike Pence. In the most recent issue of The Atlantic, our staff writer McKay Coppins has given us a profile of the vice president that offers a really interesting window, not just on him, but on President Trump, on conservative evangelical Christianity at this moment, and on what our political future might be. Welcome to the table, McKay. Thanks for having me. I'm so honored to be here. So I've been trying to get on this podcast for for months, <laughs> and you guys finally booked me. Your Delhi number finally came up on a big LCD screen. Number 96, McKay Coppins. Welcome, but, dude. McKay. So I know he's a heartbeat away from the presidency. Why is it interesting to talk about Mike Pence right now? Well, he is a heartbeat away from the presidency. That's true. He's also maybe more importantly an impeachment vote away from the presidency. Uh, This is obviously a White House that more than any other White House, at least since Richard Nixon probably, is under siege, right? You have investigators circling key members of the president's inner circle, past and present, are being interviewed by Robert Mueller's team. There's a sense growing among Republicans that I talk to in Washington that this is a presidency in peril. And then you have Mike Pence kind of at the center of all of it. Uh, He is always kind of performed this, uh, you know, loyalty and submission to the president. He acts like he's fiercely loyal to Donald Trump. But that might not actually be the case for my reporting. What also strikes me, guys, is this isn't just a presidency in peril, but to the point of McKay's great story, it's a candidacy that was in peril. I mean, Mike Pence has basically his relationship with Donald Trump has always been at the edge of peril. I mean, ever since this Mm. weird, awkward partnership began, the prospect of Donald Trump combusting either as candidate or president has always been in the foreground. This isn't a vice president for whom the prospect of becoming president is that outlandish. In fact, it's probably always been in the back of Mike Pence's brain, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think that that's a fair point. Yeah, maybe you're the big news out of the story this week. So what is the thing that we should know about Mike Pence that is lesser known that your reporting has revealed? Yeah, I think the thing that uh, that we need to know about him more than anything else is that he's a lot more ambitious and a lot more calculating than he lets on. When you see him on the campaign trail or see him kind of giving speeches or with the president, he's constantly fawning over the president, talking about how great he is and, you know, how they're such good friends and all of this. Greatest privilege of my life. And it's to serve as as vice president to a president who's keeping his word to the American people. Well, it's uh, the greatest honor of my life to stand shoulder to shoulder with Donald Trump. Uh, And he has a political reason to do that. But uh, such broad shoulders. (laughs) He loves talking about Donald Trump's broad shoulders. Uh, It's actually one of my favorite campaign trail ticks that he picked up. What you saw just two days ago is what I see every single day. A leader with broad shoulders and a big heart. He will provide that kind of broad-shouldered American strength, broad-shouldered American leadership. Uh, The broad-shouldered leadership. They're going to hear (laughs) broad-shouldered leadership 
Is broad-shouldered just Mike Pence's euphemism for bullying persona? I mean, it's just like he just uses it in a way like, oh, it's not it's not behavior unfit for the presidency. It's just broad-shouldered <laughs> strength. Well, yeah, it, he always seems to use it, especially, uh, you know, he'll say he has broad shoulders but a big heart. So he's right, almost it's right. al- it's always like when he's apologizing for something incendiary out- or outrageous that Trump Those has done. Those are just his broad no, shoulders. No, that's just his broad shoulders, the breadth of his shoulders. It's the Look. yin and yang of the president. It's broad shoulders on the one hand. But I'm going to use that one. Yeah. Don't don't mind him. He's just broad shoulders. <laughs> but the truth is it, it, Mike Pence is is somebody who is deeply religious, deeply ambitious, and those things kind of go hand in hand in his life. He has this sense of kind of manifest destiny about him. He believes that he's on something of a divine mission and that God has really placed him where he is. And that belief and that worldview, which, uh, you know, it really comes through when you spend a lot of time talking to the people who know him, uh, it, it really matters when when we reach these kind of moments of political crisis in the White House. What episodes from Mike Pence's history gave you that sense of his manifest destiny? Well, so so first, I think you have to go back to his college experience. Uh, he had been raised Catholic in a small town in Indiana, um, and he went to this small college called Hanover College, a liberal arts school in Indiana. And the spring of his freshman year, he road tripped to Kentucky with some Christian friends uh, for a music festival that was billed as kind of the Christian Woodstock. <laughs> and uh, he told this story uh, at a church a few months ago. It was a few weeks later, I went to a what was a great uh, contemporary Christian music festival in Wilmore, Kentucky, called Ichthus in 1978. And I heard... Lots of great singing, just like I heard this morning, and I heard lots of wonderful preaching. And Saturday night, sitting in a light rain, I, I, um, uh, I, I walked down, and uh, not, you know, not out of anything other than my, my heart really finally broke with the deep realization that what had happened on the cross in some infinitesimal way had happened for me. And I gave my life and made a personal decision to trust Jesus wow. Christ as my Savior. So he threw the Catholics under the bus. <laughs> he has tried to walk that back a little bit recently, I've noticed. He, he still speaks fondly of his Catholic childhood. Uh, his whole family is still Catholic, by the way. McKay, is there tension with his family, though, given the fact that, as you said, he was raised in a family of Irish Catholic Democrats and has really gone far afield? Yeah, actually, it, it's interesting. There was a story... Uh, during the campaign, I think in the New York Times, about this very question. And he's the only one in his family who who's converted. And I think it was Pence's brother actually said that uh, it was a really painful experience, especially for his mother, who, who's a, is still a very devout Catholic. But, you know, look, the, the, I, Pence's journey here is actually not that uncommon. A lot of people during this time were discovering or rediscovering their kind of Christian faith in an evangelical context. This was in the midst of the Jesus movement. There was a, uh, a kind of weird kind of Christian counterculture movement at the time. And also it was right around the time that Jerry Falwell was launching the moral majority. So the, this really wasn't a, a time of kind of evangelical ascendancy. And he was one of many people who uh, was converting. So he became an evangelical Christian. What's interesting is the next year, Pence becomes the president of his fraternity. Uh, and he, he kind of meticulously befriended all of the, the various frat brothers uh, to be able to propel, be propelled to this post. So he didn't just become president of the fraternity. He campaigned. He, he made himself president. <laughs> he installed himself as president of the fraternity. Um, and, and it's funny because I talked to one of his frat brothers from that time, a guy named Dan Murphy, who's actually now a, a history professor at that college. And he told me that even back then, all the frat brothers knew he wanted to be president. So this is, you know, he's a teenager still basically. <laughs> and he has his eye on the Oval Office. There, there's one story, though, one episode from that time that I think is worth telling. Yeah, tell um, me about frat bro, frat bro Pence. Yeah, it's frat bro Pence. Well, so it's funny because he's actually, if you look at like the, the pictures from the yearbooks at that time, he's kind of like a it, it's weird to imagine now, but he's kind of a stud, honestly. Like he's he's walking around. He has a guitar. He's the kind of guy. If you went to college, he's the kind of guy who would be like leading a gaggle of young women in like a sing along with his guitar on the quad. Uh, but he, uh, McKay, Mike Pence is a handsome dude. Yeah, I agree. 
I agree. Oh, I, I, I'm not questioning his handsomeness. I, I, it's just that he doesn't. Well, you he, sound surprised. He that has he's a, a kind stud. of swagger. Like if you read about him and watch the photos of him, and, or look at the photos in, in the yearbook, he has. He's like a swaggering like. Like uh, bro, I mean it's I, it's not it's not just the handsomeness. You it's don't the see whole, that now. No, you don't I, see I, swaggering. I don't, I'm bro not sure now. if swagger is a word I would describe. <laughs> I would use to describe Vice President Mike Pence. So so he's the president of the fraternity. The uh, the movie Animal House had just come out. This fraternity was constantly getting into trouble by reenacting scenes from their favorite scenes from the movie. And and in particular, they got in trouble because the school was trying to shut down alcohol consumption. And uh, the Figams, as his frat brothers were called, were smuggling kegs into into their frat house. And they kind of had this elaborate system to smuggle the booze in. They had like campus lookouts and uh, and various other things. (laughs) Anyway, so one night they're at a rowdy party. And they get word that an associate dean is on his way over to the house to bust them. And so typically, uh, I'm told that when something like this would happen, when an administrator would come and confront them and, and catch them with alcohol, one of the frat brothers would answer the door and claim all the booze was his. And then that would kind of spare the rest of the fraternity from punishment, right? Yeah, and, and Pence is president, so it's like the So it kind of here. falls to him, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So he goes and answers the door. And instead of doing that, he leads the dean straight to the kegs and admits that they've been violating the rules. They get punished very severely. Dan Murphy told me they really got thrown under the bus. Uh, and a lot of his frat brothers were really mad at Pence for doing this. So Pence led the deans to the keg. And how did he – I mean, did he get punished? How did he come off after this? Well, uh, <laughs> what we know is that he uh, he's apparently maintained pretty good relationship with the deans because after he graduated, he was offered a job in the admissions office at the school. Well – so doesn't that just mean that Mike Pence is a frat snitch? I mean, is that not just the official designation? Is that a real became, portmanteau, frat I, snitch? Uh, uh, okay, first of all, I love you for many reasons, Matt Thompson, <laughs> but chief among them is that you respond to frat snitch with portmanteau. Uh, I don't know that it's a portmanteau. I just made it up on the spot. But I like clearly, it. I'm stealing it. <laughs> Mike Pence lost the bros and gained the 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 confidence and I guess admiration of the administrators. <laughs> I, I think that that is yes fair to say. Um, uh, I, I saw a lot of people on Twitter after reading this anecdote in the story call him a narc. Um, but, right, and that's why I prefer the gentler frat snitch. Fr- what <laughs> frat snitchery is this? <laughs> this is such a great word, Alex. I can't Mike believe Mike Pence, <laughs> vice president and frat snitch. Yes. You're welcome, America. Put it on a business card. Uh, so he, he kind of figured out a way even back then and has continued to figure out a way to keep the higher ups just happy enough for him to keep climbing the ladder. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> so we saw evidence early on of, of Pence's perhaps outsized ambition. When did he start revealing some other of the traits that would elevate him to the role vice presidential pick? Well, so he, you know, he graduated from college, went to law school. And in his late 20s, he decided to run for Congress. He was actually 29 the first time he ran for Congress. And he he ran two campaigns, uh, one when he was 29, another one two years later. He lost both and and kind of lost in dramatic fashion. The first one, he actually had this kind of very uh, earnest gimmick where he he rode around his district in a a bicycle and uh, would like canvas the neighborhood and try to talk to voters on the sidewalk. It was a publicity stunt basically, but it Worked. Uh, and it kind of, while he lost that campaign, it created sort of a wholesome image for himself that a lot of people liked in the district. So two years later, he runs again, but this time decides to take a much more um, aggressive tack, I think it's fair to say. He he ran kind of these vicious uh, campaign ads in one of the most kind of uh, famous ones in Indiana. People still talk about it. He, he hired an actor and dressed him up like a cartoonish Arab sheik and, uh, and thanked Pence's opponent for advancing the interests of foreign oil, uh, which did not go over well. Oh my. Um, there's, it's funny. I remember this headline. From, I was digging through the archives. There's a headline in one of the uh, newspaper stories that says, Pence urges clean campaign, calls opponent a liar, <laughs> which I think sums up kind of the, the way that Pence uh, pursued this. But what's interesting is that he didn't win either of those campaigns, but 
had created kind of a a perch for himself in politics and so used it to launch a new career. What was the new career? <laughs> he was he became a uh, a conservative talk radio host. Mike Pence. <laughs> There's some pretty incredible uh, tape that we have from that era. Discharge. So the first question I have for you was, was justice served in the case of Kelly Flynn? So it, it was the 90s and Pence, uh, as a conservative talk radio personality in Indiana, he, he built himself as Rush Limbaugh on decaf, <laughs> which which means he was, you know, kind of a kinder, gentler, more polite, more Midwestern version of Rush Limbaugh. But he, he was he also kind of forged this culture war persona that would serve him well for basically the rest of his career. What was the general discharge? Justice served. Call me at 800-603. These tapes are amazing. Sorry, I just had to say that. <laughs> uh, can I – I would like to know, McKay, did Mike Pence like being a, a sort of semi-prominent, at least at the state level, conservative voice in the media? I mean, could that have been – it's interesting to me that both he and Donald Trump had media careers granted at different levels, but that that was a yeah. sort of like pastime for both of them. Yeah, I, I think he liked it. But, I, I, you know, I talked to people who knew him at that time, and they said even then it seemed like he was using it to lay the groundwork for a, mm. another political bid at some point. He kind of turned himself in to a local celebrity, a state, you know, political celebrity. And, and often, you know, at a, at the, they, the radio stations would have events, and, uh, and he would meet and greet people and kiss babies and stuff. And he was kind of, even then, s- seemed like he was acting like a candidate. It, it was... He's, I think he saw it as a launching pad for uh, for a return to politics at some point. Hmm. It's funny. If you listen to the tape from back then, it's almost like a perfect time capsule of 90s era culture war uh, <laughs> stuff. You know, he talked about Dr. Kevorkian and calling him a monster. Throwback. There was somebody, a woman in the Air Force who had committed adultery and was uh, discharged but honorably or not dishonorably enough. And he used that as a whole conversation about how America didn't take adultery seriously enough. I, for one, believe that the Seventh Commandment, contained in the Ten Commandments, is still a big deal. It's the most important promise you'll ever make. And holding people accountable... He kind of realized that not only were these the issues he cared about most, but these were the issues his listeners uh, really cared about. And he used it to kind of build his platform. So how does he go from uh, Rush Limbaugh and decaf (laughs) back into actual politics? So... Eventually, he basically became a state celebrity in Indiana. And when a congressional bid opened up, he ran. But what's interesting is he he goes to Congress and he basically is the kind of champion of conservative Christianity in Congress. He was very aggressive about bills cracking down on abortion. He he was known to carry a Bible around and quote from it to explain his votes and to explain his political decisions. And eventually, after several years in Congress, he was kind of such a force in conservative Christian politics that he was actually considering a run for president back in 2012. He met with some senior leaders leaders in the religious right who told him that he should go run for governor instead and use that as a platform to run for president later, which is what he did. So he goes back to Indiana, becomes governor. And it's funny because when he ran for governor, he cast himself as sort of the heir to the popular outgoing governor, Mitch Daniels, who was kind of business friendly and pragmatic and not a culture warrior at all. And so once he got to office, he started out cutting taxes and taking on local unions and kind of doing the traditional Republican business things, kind of pursued fiscal conservatism. But uh, then in 2015, he signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and it kind of would end up defining his entire governorship. Opponents shout out their frustration. Supporters applaud as Indiana Governor Mike Pence signs into law a measure that critics say will allow businesses to turn away gay and lesbian customers, and the governor says will uphold religious freedom. 
this bill is not about discrimination. It was a major controversy. I mean, it, it totally blew up in his face. It's funny. He basically stumbled into it. I don't think he quite realized what he was doing, but businesses said that they were going to pull out. Conventions started pulling out. The uh, NCAA, which is headquartered in Indianapolis, said that this could imperil future events in the state. Look, the NCAA has spoken out about this. They said they're concerned. You've got the final four about to take place in Indianapolis, and the Republican mayor of Indianapolis has said he opposes this idea despite his Republican governor supporting it. This is a big problem for him. So did he rescue himself? Well, not exactly. Hmm. (laughs) Um, he, He accepted this invitation to go on This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Governor Mike Pence joins us now. Good morning, Governor. Thank you for joining us. Was it a mistake to sign this opportunity? So was it a mistake to sign this law? He was supposed to defend himself and defend the decision and and make the case that this wasn't an anti-gay, anti-LGBT bill, but it was about religious freedom. But the the interview actually kind of became famous as like just a total train wreck. So this is a yes or no question. Is Advance America right when they say a florist in Indiana can now refuse to serve a gay couple without fear of punishment? Well, let me explain to you the purpose of this bill. Pence didn't anticipate that this bill would be as controversial as it was. The language around it was totally unremarkable within the evangelical political circles that he kind of in, had inhabited for so many years. In this country. Sir, I'm, Look, I'm just bringing the, up the a question, message from one of your supporters. That was one of your supporters who was talking about the bill right there. It said it would protect a Christian florist who, uh, yeah. against any kind of punishment. Is that true or not? George, look, the, the issue here is, you know, is tolerance a two-way street or not? So he, he kind of tries to draw on his ashuk's humility and folksiness, but it just does not go well, basically. And, and he's asked the same question over and over and over again and, and keeps dancing around it and refusing every to answer. Of every faith. Final question, final yes or no question, Governor. Do you think it should be legal in the state of Indiana to discriminate against gays or lesbians? George... It's a yes or no question. Come on. Hoosiers don't believe in discrimination. So this whole episode basically came to define his governorship. It it was, you know, you had the the national meltdown on TV. You had uh, the business community backlash. And after a few days of this, Pence basically caved and uh, passed an amended version of the the bill. But by then it was too late. His 2016 presidential prospects were basically done. Uh, His polls were in a free fall. Democrats were raising money to try to beat him in re-election. Uh, This was, for all intents and purposes, it seemed like the end of his political career. And yet. (laughs) It clearly was not the end of his political career. It was not. See above re heartbeat away from the presidency. (laughs) What happened? Well, this is is what's so amazing and what kind of makes him an interesting avatar for the religious right in general. Because – the person who came offering salvation, uh, for lack of a better word, was Donald Trump. Hmm. Uh, it was not even clear that he was going to be able to win re-election for governor in the summer of 2016 when Donald Trump shows up and and asks if you'd like to play a round of golf and talk about the vice presidency. He's a very good golfer. Did you win? Uh, he beat me like a drum, uh, <laughs> which is not really saying much. So what was the divine intervention that made Mike Pence Donald Trump's? Vice presidential pick. Right. So, well, so back up. First of all, so Mike Pence plays a round of golf with Trump, decides he definitely wants it. He wants to be on this ticket, right? And most of the people on Trump's campaign also want Pence on this ticket because they think he's their best shot, right? He has credibility with conservative Christian voters who Trump is not exactly, you know, the best at courting. He has ties to the Republican establishment, which has been wary of Trump. So everyone on the campaign wants Pence on the ticket. Pence wants to be on the ticket. Trump is a little iffy. He, as decision time is nearing, is leaning toward picking Chris Christie as his running mate. Basically, Christie is just a guy who Trump gets along with better. There's more natural chemistry. New Jersey, New York. Yeah, they're kind of bridge and tunnel, tri-state loudmouths, you know. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's a lot easier to envision Donald Trump and Chris Christie broing out than Donald Trump and Mike Pence broing out. I'll put it that way. They both have broad shoulders. Let's be clear, guys. They (laughs) both 
have broad shoulders. Christy is definitely not a fried snitch. Let's make that clear. Also. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then there is this miracle, divine intervention. During a short campaign swing through Indiana, Trump gets word that his plane has broken down on the runway and that he's going to need to spend the night in Indianapolis. Clearly an act of God. <laughs> well, or, or an act of Paul Manafort, what? as it turns out. <laughs> I report in the piece that uh, Paul Manafort actually made this story up to keep Trump in town an extra night and give Pence one last chance to woo him. <gasps> I know, I know. Can you imagine a senior, senior aides handling Trump that way? Um <laughs> Well, the the gambit worked. Uh, you know, Pen Pence and Trump dined together. Trump was convinced, and uh, just a few days later, Trump announced Pence as his running mate. Be the next vice president of the United States, Governor Mike Pence. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. What did he say to him during that dinner? Especially if Christie was waiting in the wings effectively measuring the drapes, was it just abject flattery? Your broad shoulders and big heart. Yeah. Yeah, I think he just really... Golf skills really and shoulders. about how the shoulders. No, I think that... I mean, it's been reported elsewhere that he, he actually impressed Trump by really going after Hillary Clinton. He mm-hmm. he kind of demonstrated his old talk radio skills and uh and showed that he he wasn't afraid to uh attack, you know, the democratic candidate and I think that that's probably what sealed the deal in addition to all the flattery and everything else. By all accounts, it seems that Pence has been a avid vocal unquestionable supporter of the president. So, yes, in public, he has been. You know, he actually became kind of famous or notorious, depending on who you are, during the campaign for praising and defending Trump in every context, regardless of what happened. I think it's inarguable uh, that Vladimir Putin has been a stronger leader in his country than Barack Obama has been in this country. So obviously a lot of a lot of Christians and especially kind of Trump averse Christians saw Pence's defenses of Trump as kind of, uh, you know, morally questionable. I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Why is it that even after, say, the Access Hollywood tapes come out? How is it that Pence is still in Trump's corner and how do Christians respond to that? Well, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I put this question to a lot of people around Pence because it was something I was really trying to understand. I mean, you know, I'm a person of faith as well. I, I have a hard time figuring out how you square those things. But as I was talking to them, one interesting answer came from somebody who knows Pence really well. He said that Pence has always believed in this evangelical biblical concept called servant leadership. So the idea is rooted in in the Gospels where Jesus uh, models humility by washing his disciples' feet and teaches that uh, you have to humble yourself before you can become great. So to the outsider, uh, when they watch Pence, uh, you know, kind of fawning over Trump and defending him and apologizing for him and rationalizing everything he does, that might look like, you know, sycophancy or, no, or nothing more than kind of partisanship, blind partisanship. But he sees it as actually a fulfillment of Christian teachings. He believes that he's always under somebody's authority. Everyone is under someone's authority. And he is supposed to humbly submit to the will of Donald Trump because Donald Trump is the next president of the United States and he's serving Donald Trump. It's something I should say that a lot of Christians would take issue with this idea, but it's something that Pence has always believed in. And actually, all the way back to his congressional days, when he was in Congress, he taught his staffers that they were supposed to treat their constituents with this same idea, that they were servants to the constituents. So so Pence has always kind of believed in this. It's funny, Kellyanne Conway, I talked to her for this piece, and she said that she knew that the two men would get along because Mike Pence— uh, his faith allows him to sacrifice his ego for the greater good, <laughs> which I think is probably a pretty good description of their dynamic. However, not a trait in the uh, the guy he reports to. <laughs> uh, yes, I think that's fair to say. But surely, McKay, some of the things that Mike Pence has been forced to defend as far as Trump is concerned are repudiations of the very Christian ideals that Pence ho- holds so so dear. I mean, how does he no square that? No question. I think that this is how he 
is able to reconcile or justify going to bat for Trump when he does things that are clearly in violation of of Christian teachings or Christian ideals. He's, I think that the answer is basically, look, I don't agree with this. I don't think this is the right behavior, but I'm under Trump's authority. My job is to serve him. And uh, even if that means doing some things that are uh, maybe a little out of character for me or maybe not what I would uh, ideally like to do, I'll do it because I'm serving him. I mean, it's a, it's a there's despite a, some... the fact that they are they go against the very Christian faith that dry. <laughs> well, I mean, it just this is the, like the, the pretzel logic loop here, right? Well, yeah. this is the the pretzel logic here is that you can justify doing anything that way, right? That that's I think the problem, and but but one of the things about this story is that. It's the story of Mike Pence, but it's also the story of millions of conservative Christians that have have figured out a way to reconcile their support for Trump with their faith. And, and it's, you know, it's something that is causing a lot of soul searching and, frankly, theological debate within Christian circles still. And I would say it's the same thing is happening with the Republican Party, especially the establishment wing of the Republican Party. It's here's someone who stands in repudiation to many of our long held mm-hmm. policy goals, but we're going to stay with him because it will further some objectives in a way that we stand to benefit somehow. Right. It's this constant dance that they're all doing, which is what do we have to give up to be able to gain a little ground on in this one initiative or in this one goal? Stick with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about a moment that might have been too much even for Mike Pence. When the Access Hollywood bombshell dropped last October, was the faithful running mate contemplating a coup? adultery no longer a big deal in Indiana and in America? And just love to know your thoughts. A big story just dropped on Donald Trump. Donald Trump, the comments on women you have not heard. The breaking news, a bombshell in the presidential race tonight. An audio recording surfacing of Donald Trump using vulgar language to talk about women, bragging on tape about groping women's genitals, trying to have sex with a married woman. McKay, take us back to that moment that many observers thought would upend the Trump campaign in October of 2016. How did the servant leader, man of faith, react to the bombshell that dropped in mid-October? Right. So this was the one moment where Pence's kind of true motivation and uh, and goals kind of come through. And, and this is something that we reported exclusively in this story. But when the Access Hollywood tip came out, you'll remember this was reported during the campaign that Pence did, he kind of went rogue for a couple days. Vice presidential candidate Mike Pence not taking questions tonight from reporters on his running mate's comments on the set of Access Hollywood in 2005, tape of that being made public tonight. He canceled a campaign event that he was supposed to show up at. Anonymous quotes started popping up in the press about how Pence was beside himself over the revelation, over the tape. And it was reported earlier this year that Pence actually sent a letter to Trump saying that he needed time to decide whether he could stay with the campaign. But in fact, according to several of the Republicans I talked to who are familiar with the situation, Pence wasn't just thinking about dropping out. He was contemplating a kind of coup. Within hours after the Post published the Access Hollywood tape, Pence made it clear to the Republican National Committee that he was ready to take Trump's place as the party's nominee. And, you know, this obviously would have been, you know, unprecedented just a few weeks out from Election Day. But, you know, the situation was really dire. If you remember back then, I mean, Republicans were calling on Trump to drop out, rescinding their endorsements. It was really unclear whether Trump was going to survive. And uh, and Pence, I think, sensed an opportunity. And this is totally opposite what he's saying out on television at this moment. Mm hmm. Well, and this is the thing about Mike Pence. This goes back to the kind of cocktail of ambition and religious belief that kind of defines his whole worldview. He is willing to uh, bow down to Trump, to serve him, to, um, you know, to do whatever he needs to to say stay close to Trump for now. 
right? But ultimately, he has his eye on higher office, and he believes that he's supposed to be the top guy, right? He's supposed to be there to fulfill his mission. His ultimate loyalty, I think he would tell you, is not to Donald Trump. It's to God, and he believes the best way he can uh, fulfill that mission is by— you know, taking the big job. So th- this is why, you know, some of the people I talk to around Pence and, and around Trump question how loyal he really will be to Trump when push comes to shove. You know, mm. if there's some moment in the next, in the coming months or year uh, where Trump really is going to need Pence's backing, is he going to be there for him? I don't know. McKay, in your in your piece, you write, and I think that this is a very ominous <laughs> Paragraph. You said there is, of course, nothing inherently scary or disqualifying about an elected leader who seeks wisdom in scripture and solace in prayer. What critics should worry about is not that Pence believes in God, but that he seems so certain God believes in him. I have to ask you, especially as a, a person who finds faith in their in their everyday quotidian non-journalist life, <laughs> how much of Pence's spirituality is covered, do you think, for ambition? It's an interesting question. I mean, I I will say one of the things I personally found most compelling about Pence was the way that he was trying to reconcile his ambition with his faith. And because, frankly, look, anyone who uh, is a religious person or a person of faith will tell you that this is a constant struggle in their lives, figuring out how you reconcile your ideals, your beliefs with your your goals with your day-to-day living, with your anxieties and personality and and everything, right? You know, (laughs) Mike Pence, I think it's playing out in uh, larger-than-life fashion. It's extremely high profile, and the compromises are a little more glaring than maybe a a lot of people uh, normally live. But, you know, I I don't think that his spirituality is cover for his ambition. At least, I don't think he thinks about it that way. I think he thinks that, you know, his ambition is— to serve God and to do God's will and to and to help people. I think he genuinely thinks that he has an earnest idealism about his work. But this is why I, I in that same paragraph you read, I bring up these questions, which are, you know, what happens when manifest destiny replaces humility and the line between faith and hubris blurs what unseemly compromises get made? I mean, the, this is what we're seeing take place kind of writ large in the religious right, which is uh, a, millions of conservative Christians are are compromising the standards and the values that um, that they've they've championed for so long in pursuit of power. And they would say once they get that power, they'll use it for good. They'll do good things with it. But, you know, it, it raises troubling questions about how far you're willing to go, what how much you're willing to compromise to get that power. I'm curious about what Mike Pence's ascension to the presidency, if that were ever to happen, what type of a president do you expect he'd be? And in particular, how would he carry forward the prerogatives of evangelical Christianity and its conservative movement? Yeah, that that's a great question. I think that you can look at his record for some hints at this. Obviously, we we don't know, right? This is speculation. But you look at the things that have mattered most to him. When he was in Congress, when he was in the House, he became kind of a standard bearer for the pro-life movement and uh, was constantly introducing bills to crack down or limit access to abortion. I think that that's, uh, that's an issue that he cares deeply about and would probably pursue. Uh, these religious freedom issues, uh, meaning protecting Christians, especially, he would say, people of faith and in general, from having to violate their religious beliefs and kind of giving them the freedom to, uh, you know, do some discrimination in the name of their own religious beliefs. I think he'd probably pursue that. He would definitely put conservative justices on the bench. He would definitely pursue a fiscal conservative agenda, basically in line with what we've seen from Trump. What's interesting is during the campaign, there was a lot of talk about the deep divisions within the Republican Party that ideologically speaking, and Pence and Trump kind of represented those divisions. Trump was this new kind of nationalist, populist, talking about protecting entitlement programs and being more restrictionist in trade policy. And Pence was a more traditional conservative. But 
since they've been elected and kind of been in office, they've kind of just pursued the old line conservative uh, republicanism that we've gotten used to. So I don't think you'd see a ton of change there. But there's no question that Pence is also a, uh, in addition to being a social conservative, is a dyed-in-the-wool kind of business donor class fiscal conservative as well. McKay, what sense did you get in terms of his competence as an executive? Because a few months ago after the inauguration, I spoke to Democrats who'd been in the legislature when Pence was governor, and they, unsurprisingly, didn't have very flattering things to say about his skills managing. Um, And they pointed to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the Mm -hmm. fact that he kind of stepped in it and didn't have any sense that it would be the defining moment of his governorship. I mean, the the sort of common wisdom is that Pence would be a better executive than Trump. But how fair do you think that assessment is? Well, I yeah, I think that he would be a better executive in as much as he has more impulse control, uh, you know, right. probably <laughs> will act a little more professionally, have a better run office. I mean, I, I will say having dealt with the vice president's office throughout the course of this, re- the reporting, the story, they're a lot more uh, uh, easy to work with than uh, a lot of the people around the president. But you're right. I mean, look, I talked to, I spent some time in Indiana for this story and I talked to people, both Republicans and Democrats, who were there for his governorship. And Almost across the board, they'll tell you it did not go very well. Some Democrats will say it was disastrous. Republicans might be a little more generous. But even they'll say he did not excel at building consensus in the legislature. The Republicans in the legislature didn't like the way that he tried to enact his agenda. He had a lot of problems kind of corralling them, pushing forward policy initiatives that he cared about. And there was always a sense even then that he was just using the governorship as a stepping stone to higher office. Uh, you know, and he barely even concealed that. So that that caused a lot of resentment uh, that that affected, I think, his governorship as well. But yeah, the, there frankly are not a lot of signs that he's a uh, an, you know an extremely savvy or skilled uh, executive. So I, I don't know how he would do as president. I'm curious about what would happen if another president who is more who leaned more on his faith in his public and political life were to take office again, more than Donald Trump does. I mean, Donald Trump speaks a fair amount about scripture and the Bible. But at this moment, there are some interesting tensions in the conversation about religion that weren't true 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right now, for example, we are hearing oral arguments in the Colorado Bakers case. Should a baker of wedding cakes be forced to make wedding cakes for a same-sex couple? But at the same time, the Supreme Court has just allowed President Trump's travel ban to take effect, which is kind of a step against religious freedom for Muslims. Mm -hmm. Um, How does Pence navigate those particular tensions and how is the conservative Christian movement navigating the fact that there is this – political backlash against Islam. Yeah, the, well, this is one of the the central tensions of the the Trump administration and also frankly a lot of conservative Christians when they approach these religious freedom issues. Religious freedom often means when they talk about it religious freedom for them, but not necessarily for other faiths. There is, I should say, a contingent and a fairly vocal contingent of conservative Christians who are also outspoken in defense of Muslim freedom and and other uh, other faiths. Russell Moore, who I quote in the piece, is from the Southern Baptist Convention. He's been outspoken against the travel ban, against uh, the various things that Trump has said and about refugees. So I do think that that this is one area where Trump's kind of hard edged nationalism and some would say xenophobia or appeals to xenophobia don't. Don't mesh perfectly with the agenda of the Christian right. Uh, But frankly, again, we've seen a lot of conservative Christians come to his defense on that stuff. Uh, And Pence, in the midst of it all, you know, he's done what he always does, which is he's defended the president. Though I think I think if you go back and look at when Trump first announced his his proposed Muslim ban, Pence, actually, this was long before, obviously, he was going to join the ticket, came out in opposition to it on Twitter. So you see where his heart is. And then this is another issue where you see he's willing to kind of make compromises to be able to be close to power. 
McKay, you also quote Russell Moore talking about how evangelicals experienced the sense of an almost existential threat, talking about the backlash to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, and that Moore says it was only a matter of time before cultural elites and their scornful attitudes would help drive Christians into the arms of a strong man like Trump. In in researching and reporting on this piece, I mean, it, how much fault do you think lies with the left in, in sort of not making a home, if you will, for for Christian progressives, which at this point sounds like an oxymoron for for the faithful in in the flock, if you will. Yeah, well, I mean, first I will say that the the black church is a key component of the Democratic uh, coalition. And so there are certainly progressive Christians. But yeah, I think that white Christians, especially white conservative Christians, have increasingly over the past 10 years, five years, felt like a kind of triumphalism or a growing hostility from the left uh, in the culture wars. And they feel like it's not just that they've started to lose the culture wars. They've kind of shifted from offense to defense. That is true. And that certainly contributes to it. But they also feel like a lot of people on the left are not content with simply uh, you know, winning these battles over LGBT rights or uh, abortion or or whatever else that they're they're now out for conquest. That they feel like, uh, you know, you you've been punishing us for so long. We're we're going to get you back now. And, and so I think that there is this. It, it's amazing as I've done the reporting here. It's very easy for those of us who are not inside this world day to day to kind of miss the the sense of urgency there is among conservative Christians uh, in parts of this country. Like, they really feel like the culture in the, of this country is, you know, going to hell, basically. Or they, as one one person told right. me, uh, you know what, in a handbasket. Right, uh, it's really visceral. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. really visceral. They're, they feel like they're under threat. And, and look, a lot of this is fed by conservative media, there's no question. And But they feel like uh, they they need somebody to protect them, yeah. and that and that's why Donald Trump had this ability to woo them. They he it's not that they saw him as a moral exemplar; they just saw him as a guy who promised to protect them. And things had gotten so bad in their view, they felt like they they were willing to vote for anyone who would protect them. It's funny to hear you say that, McKay, and to think about the fact that right now there are a lot of groups in the country that feel like they're. Mm-hmm. They're under threat. Under um, threat. Well, that, that's that's kind of one of the most amazing things about the culture wars over the last five years, ten years, is everyone kind of feels that they're losing somehow, right? When reality is, I think we can map the the power structures in this country, and we know who's who's on top, right? Yeah. But everyone sort of feels like they're under threat. Everyone feels like they're losing ground. Well, with that, um, let's close out with our final segment. Keepers. Uh, as always, I ask my guests at Radio Atlantic um, what you've heard, read, listened to, watched recently that you do not want to forget. Alex, in this in this Yuletide season, gents, when uh, many people are celebrating uh, faithful midwinter events, whether that is Hanukkah or Christmas. I'm getting back in touch with my Irish Catholic heritage, and yesterday night I had a glass of eggnog, and my keeper for this week is very heavy. It is <laughs> my keeper for this week is high fat content, high sugar content, high dairy content, drinkable beverages laced with alcohol. Let me recommend them to you, whether you are a Muslim, whether you are Jewish, whether you are Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, or Christian. It tastes delicious, like a cup of melted ice cream. Non-alcoholic egg- eggnog is also delicious, too. Not quite as delicious, but... And may I recommend the bourbon? McKay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would you like to keep? My keeper is a profile written by my friend and former colleague at BuzzFeed News, Ruby Kramer, uh, of Terry McAuliffe, who is the outgoing governor of Virginia, longtime Democratic fundraiser and potentially a future presidential candidate. It is both insightful and wildly entertaining. <laughs> it, in fact, somebody on Twitter counted up the number of exclamation points in the profile, found that there are 70 exclamation points, <laughs> awesome. uh, which might sound exhausting, but she earns every one of them. Uh, and and the, the headline is Terry McAuliffe's Dead Serious Advice for Democrats. Have some fun. 
uh, with an exclamation point right there. And, and it actually makes an interesting point about how at this moment of, you know, bleakness in American politics, uh, Terry McAuliffe, for one thing, seems from this profile like he might be the only Democrat in America who's enjoying himself. But also uh, he makes the case that, you know, Americans want happy warriors and maybe uh, Democrats could uh, brighten up even uh, among uh, all the bleakness and grimness. Uh, and that might be a way to win win the country over. Anyway, it's a fantastic read, uh, very fun to read, and uh, and I recommend it to everyone. Awesome. <laughs> 70 exclamation points. That definitely is a keeper. Uh, I will turn down to my keeper. My keeper this week is Cuban art. Uh, there is a phenomenal exhibit. Once again, I bring you a all of it, museum just exhibit. All of it? All, 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 all Cuban, Cuban art? All, Cuban art since 1950. Uh, there is an exhibit right now. It's at the Walker. It was previously at Houston. I imagine that it's going to be touring around the country called Adios Utopia, Dreams and Deceptions in Cuban Art Since 1950. And I got to see this recently. It's phenomenal. It's currently at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, came there from Houston, Texas at the Museum of Fine Arts, and I imagine it may be coming to a city near you sometime soon. But this is possibly the most significant exhibition of Cuban art in the U.S. since 1944, I believe. And it showcases a long history of Cuban art through very many different political phases in the country's development. Um, Mm. And it includes not only includes propaganda and propagandistic art it includes the art that was subverting propaganda and propagandistic art <laughs> there are these like pencil sketches wow of, that's so meta oh my gosh there's pencil sketches of cuban revolutionaries in full beards and dresses um that wow <laughs> it it's it's such a rich collection right now we are amidst a revolutionary moment in many ways, here in the U.S. and in various places around the world, there is so much just tremendous expression that is happening around us at this time in art. Um, this was a reminder that if you haven't gone outside in your city to a museum to see the searching cries of expression that artists are generating at this time, at this incredibly fermenting time in our culture, do so. This expression will one day be captured in a museum somewhere, but to be part of it now, there there are just ideas and there's a language there that that is so rich. So Cuban art, Adios Utopia, Dreams and Deceptions in Cuban Art since 1950. And if you don't have access to that exhibit, go to a museum. Go to a museum. It's a fermenting time. It is a fermenting time. So McKay, Coffins, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My esteemed co-host, Alex, as always, thank you for joining us. Matt, it's always a pleasure. That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend and Diana Douglas with production support from Kim Lau. Thank you to our colleague, McKay Coppins, for joining us. And thanks, as always, to my esteemed co-host, Alex Wagner. We'd like you to leave us a voicemail with your answers to a question this week. What are the most interesting ideas you encountered in 2017? Tell us something you read, heard, watched, or thought up completely on your own this year that you just thought was brilliant. Leave us your message with the best idea of the year at 202-266-7600. Check us out at facebook.com slash radioatlantic and theatlantic.com slash radio. Catch the show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, please do rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. We certainly appreciate it. Most importantly, though, thank you for listening. Whatever you do, don't be a frat snitch. We'll see you next week.